We are continuing in our journey through the book of Genesis today, and as I've mentioned, this isn't a collection of random stories. We're following a a pathway, the pathway by which God will fulfill his promises. This is the salvation story, the orchestrated account of the people through whom God would send his answer for humanity's sin, for your sin and my sin. And we arrive today at what is likely the most critical and pivotal moment in Jacob's life. This is the main event. This is the moment at which Jacob's life changes. We left off last week in chapter 31 with Jacob and his family on their way home, on their way back to Jacob's homeland. His father-in-law Laban, who had become his foe, had pursued him, but they entered into a peace treaty and Laban had headed back home. But of course, Jacob had a very different foe that he still had to face when he gets home. His twin and elder brother Esau, whom Jacob had manipulated and deceived and stolen his blessing, was certainly going to be waiting and he was going to be angry. Although two decades have passed, Jacob is assuming the worst of his brother. And so chapter 32 begins with Jacob, the masterful deceiver, trying once again to manipulate the situation. He sends some messengers ahead who meet with Esau, and they come back and they tell Jacob that Esau is on his way with 400 men. And so in a panic, Jacob divides his entourage and his procession into multiple sections, and he sends successive waves of servants and livestock as gifts attempting to soften Esau's heart before they meet. He tells the servants to call Esau Lord and to refer to Jacob as his servant. And we see in verse 20 what is on uh, Jacob's mind. It says this, For he thought, I will pacify him, with these gifts. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And so that night they set up camp along a river. And this is the backstory of Jacob, afraid, trembling at the thought of meeting his brother, that sets up our text for today, when Jacob will meet another adversary. Genesis chapter 32. I'll be starting at verse 22. This is God's word to us. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God 
face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. God, your word is true. It is inspired, inerrant, and it is our authority. And so as you speak through your word, may you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe all that you say to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is, without a doubt, one of the most unique and interesting events in the entire Old Testament. Jacob sends his family across the Jabbok River and is alone. And verse 24 tells us quite abruptly that a man wrestled with Jacob till daybreak. Now, anybody who's been in a fight or in a wrestling match knows that two to three minutes can be a long time to be engaged in an encounter like that, let alone hours. But Jacob and this mysterious man are wrestling until the sun comes up. We don't know what was going through Jacob's mind. We can assume that at first maybe he thought this was Esau or perhaps someone sent by Esau to attack him, but we really don't know for sure. It seems, however, that that Jacob began to sense that there was something unique about this man when in verse 25, the man reaches out and touches Jacob's hip, and suddenly his hip was dislocated. By the time we arrive at the end of the narrative, it becomes clear who the wrestler is. So as we process this intriguing, unique encounter of Jacob and the wrestler, allow me to share three thoughts with you today. The first one is this, that our most critical wrestling match is actually against God. The description of the wrestler in the story begins with him being called simply a man. But we start to get a clearer sense of his identity, and we can assume that Jacob is progressively beginning to understand who he's wrestling against as well. By At least by the time we get to verse 16, it tells us that the man says, let me go, and Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And by verse 28, it's become absolutely clear because the wrestler refers to himself as God. And Jacob reiterates that it was God that he was wrestling against in verse 30. And we could take this a step further and and allow Scripture to interpret itself. The prophet Hosea uses this passage in Hosea chapter 12 as a sermon text of sorts, and he tells us that Jacob wrestled against the angel of the Lord. And we've heard that phrase before, the angel of the Lord. We heard it earlier in Genesis. Who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the God who assumes the form of human beings? Who is God who takes on flesh, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find Jacob alone alongside the Jabbok River when he's attacked by Jesus. And he spends the whole night wrestling against Jesus. Jacob, who had moments before been shaking in his boots, worried about his brother attacking him, was now fighting against God himself. Jacob's most critical fight was against God And similarly, our most critical wrestling match is with the Lord. Many people, maybe some of you here today, have been in church Sunday after Sunday for decades. 
but haven't actually done much wrestling with the Lord. Much of popular Christianity attempts to give us a version of the Christian faith that's free from those difficult moments of wrestling and struggle. Sometimes it's in the form of teaching that makes Jesus your very own personal encouraging therapist who exists solely to pat you on the back and tell you you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Other versions of Christian teaching turn the idea of faith into a formula or a transactional relationship, that if you do your part, then Jesus will do his part as if he's a business partner. But we can't read God's word, at least with open eyes and with sincere hearts, and not be forced into that river-bottom wrestling mat where Jesus confronts Jacob. If we read God's word with sincerity, we will every single time on every single page of Holy Scripture be forced into a wrestling match with God. God's law, for example, consistently and relentlessly accuses you, backs you up, attacks you even, condemns you, squeezes every last ounce of strength from your being. It, I often uses a, use the phrase that it checkmates us. It leaves us nowhere to turn, no more moves to make. Every time we hear God's word proclaimed, we're, we're forced into a wrestling match. Will we believe that Jesus truly is all that we need? Will we submit to him and stop relying on our own strength or our own merit? Will we abandon those attempts at justifying ourselves and rest solely in the completed work of Christ? Will I agree with what God's word says about me and about my heart? Will I confess my sin when he calls it to mind or will I turn away and disengage and numb my mind and and make myself comfortable? Every time we open his word, God initiates a wrestling match with our heart and with our soul. If you don't believe me, just read the Psalms. Psalm after Psalm is full of wrestling with God. Psalm 4, for example, answer me when I call to you, God, rescue me, listen to my prayer. Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord, hear me. Psalm 6, how long, O Lord? I'm worn out from groaning. Psalm 10, why are you so far away, God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and have sorrow in my heart? Of course, Psalm 22, one we're all familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. The Christian life is one of wrestling, and our primary opponent is not with a lost world, not with our supposed enemies, just like Jacob, who thought his opponent was Esau, but spent the night wrestling with God, we too find that our most critical wrestling match is with our Creator. What we see with Jacob and what many of us have come to learn is that the longer that we wrestle and even struggle with God, the the more deeply we come to know Him, the more that we are changed by Him. But here's what's so interesting about the story of Jacob's wrestling with God is the fact that God made himself weak. Verse 25, these are words that are hard for us to process. When the man saw that he could not overpower him. 
this mysterious wrestler comes to recognize that he cannot overpower Jacob. God takes on human form. He takes on human strength. God makes himself vulnerable and allows himself to be equally matched by Jacob. Jacob spent all this time thinking that his greatest opponent was his brother. And in in chapter 32, for example, verse 7, we saw that Jacob was greatly afraid. He was distressed over his situation with Esau. But what Jacob didn't realize was that he had a more important wrestling match ahead of him. He had someone else to contend with. And the beautiful byproduct of that wrestling match is that Jacob gets a new name and functionally a new identity. Verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Of course, this is foreshadowing of Israel's generation's long struggle with God, the ongoing wrestling match with the God who chose them and delivered them, and yet Israel would continue to wrestle Jacob's life is changed as he wrestles with God, and and the same is true for us. Our, Our most critical wrestling match is against God. The second thing that I want you to notice in our text today is this, that God mercifully wounds us for our good. I love the irony of what we see in the wounding of Jacob in our text. He's wrestling with God. And the text says that this man was not able to overpower Jacob. And Hosea reiterates this idea, just in case we think we might be misreading Genesis. Hosea says the same thing, that this man, that that this angel of the Lord could not overpower Jacob. And so Genesis tells us that Jacob overcame or prevailed over the angel. And so Jesus reaches out, And a word that's agreed upon in almost all of our English translations simply touches Jacob's hip. Just a touch from Jesus throws Jacob's hip out of socket. And the reason for this might seem a little confusing on the surface, but but I think we get clarity in verse 26. After wounding Jacob, the man says, Jesus says, let me go. As if Jacob's clinging to him, his arms wrapped around him, perhaps unable to move like he could before Jacob now bear hugs, clings to his opponent. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. This wound to Jacob's hip caused him to cling to Jesus, as if his entire life depended on it. And that's exactly what our wounds do as well. Like Jacob, who limped away from his encounter with Jesus, God will sometimes graciously dislocate our hip so that we might cling to him, so that we can no longer rely on our own strength, fight on our own strength. He does it to sober us from the intoxication of comfort and wealth and our own ability and merit. God mercifully wounds us for our own good. Wounded that we might grow in our faith. Wounded that we might die to self and live for God. Wounded that we might be emptied of ourselves and filled with Jesus. This this is so un-American, isn't it? 
And yet it's so utterly biblical. That God is best seen and known and experienced in suffering rather than in plenty or in comfort. God mercifully wounds us so that our pride and our self-sufficiency are done away with, to make room for his good. And his good, God's good in our lives, is always ultimately our good. But here's the thing, wounds often don't feel merciful in the moment. Hence all of those pointed questions that, we, that I read for you from the Psalms. When our hip is wrenched out of the socket, we can rarely see and rarely understand God's good purpose in that moment. It, it takes hindsight, it takes perspective, it takes the rearview mirror to give us that understanding. But what those who have been limping with Jesus for a while have come to see is that God is always working for our good. Even when all of our senses scream otherwise, God is always working for our good, even when we can't understand it. Not everybody responds to those wounds by clinging to Jesus. Some limp away angry. Some choose to curse God under their breath. You see, God can force you to the end of your own strength, but he will not force you to cling to him. But in a sense, even that response to wrestling with Jesus, even limping away, cursing God under our breath, might be better than the alternative. Because at least God refused to let you stay in your socially and culturally pseudo-fake Christian state, thinking that you were all right when you were really just loving and trusting in yourself. When God's word wounds us, many won't cling to Jesus. They will let go. They will limp away, choosing themselves, choosing comfort, choosing the world. That's reality. But Jacob, unable to support his own weight, wraps his arms around his opponent, Savior, and refuses to let go. I will not let go unless you bless me. This, of course, is an early example of persistent prayer. Like Jesus' story of the persistent widow, Jacob clings on to Jesus and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And some of you have experienced these seasons, seasons that demand persistent prayer, daily, hourly prayer. Your, your strength is gone. Your only hope is in God's answer. Prayer is a form of wrestling with God. And we're encouraged to pray, to boldly cling to Jesus, asking God for what he has promised. Our most critical wrestling match is against God. God mercifully wounds us for our good. And finally, I want you to see that the hope of the world is found in mankind prevailing over Jesus. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? I want you to think about a question this morning. Who won the wrestling match? Who was the winner on that day alongside the river? Verse 29 says, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and have overcome. Other translations use the word prevailed. You have struggled with God and with 
human beings and have prevailed. You have prevailed against God. Hosea chapter 12 verse 4 says, Jacob wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Jacob, scripture tells us, Jacob won the wrestling match. Sure, he walked away limping, wounded by God, but scripture declares Jacob the winner. What do we do with that? How do we make sense of this? Why would God allow himself to be defeated? Of course, this isn't the only time that human beings would prevail over, defeat Jesus. Alongside the river on that night, God took on human flesh, became a human being, contended with Jacob, and lost. Jacob prevailed. Or we might say God chose to lose. The Son of God refused to win that wrestling match. That The very definition and source of all strength in the universe allowed himself to be defeated by a mere mortal. And generations later, Jesus would be on the receiving end of blows from mortal soldiers. He would be beaten and whipped and spat upon and humiliated. His defeat would be oh so obvious and clear for all to see, stripped naked by his opponents, his blood soaking into the soil beneath the Roman instrument of death. Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, his body dead, slowly cooling to whatever the ambient temperature was that day. The Son of God, Jacob's mysterious wrestling opponent, again would allow himself to be utterly defeated and humiliated by mankind. You see the beautiful parallel. How could God allow Jacob to prevail? Because that's been the plan all along. That God would be pinned to the ground, defeated in a fight to the death. A fight that in the most beautiful turn, events in all of human history resulted in blessing and new life for all who would believe. Just as Jacob's defeat of Jesus near the river resulted in blessing for Jacob and his family, Jesus' utter defeat at Golgotha resulted in eternal blessing for the entire world. As only God himself could have orchestrated, the, the, the head of the deceiver was crushed by Jesus losing the battle. This is not a random and confusing encounter along a river in what is modern-day Jordan. This is a foreshadowing of that glorious Friday at Calvary in which Jesus would declare it is finished, and with those words, he would die, and by dying, blessing would flow to all who believe. Remember, Jesus changed Jacob's name on that day. He changed his name to Israel. And I want you to hear these words from Peter in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon at Pentecost. Listen to what Peter says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The feet of Jesus was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God from the very beginning. From that moment in the garden when God declared his curse and also his glorious promise, this has been the plan all along. Jesus secures a glorious victory that can only be obtained through losing. Jesus allowed himself to be defeated for you and for me, but, but we know that it wasn't possible that it wasn't possible for Jacob or for the Pharisees or for Pilate or for the Roman Empire or even for the grave to keep Jesus. He, of course, rose triumphantly, proving the power of God over Jacob, over human rulers, over sin, over death. And he promises something. Jesus promises that this wrestling won't be forever. That while the wounds we bear and the scars we carry seem like such a huge issue for us today, one day they will be no more. He promises that he is coming to make all things new and that he is the victor. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this picture of what you have done for us. Thank you that when we open your word and we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you enter into a wrestling match for our soul. Lord, we pray that you would lead us today to give in, to submit, to throw in the towel, to raise the white flag. We know that you are victorious. God, we thank you for the promise of your word today. The promise of a Savior who submitted himself, allowed himself to be defeated by sinful mankind. But that because of that defeat, blessing flows to all who believe. Help us to believe today. Strengthen faith where it's weak. Create faith where there is none. Do your good work. And above all, we give you praise for your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.